Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Um, boy, the, the preview was great. I am looking forward to the cantata this week, and I hope you are too. It is a great way to invite our friends and neighbors to come hear some good news and for us to get to know some of our friends and neighbors and uh, for us to be together. It's just a fun time of the year, and it's a good time of the year. So I hope that you are all planning on being here either Friday and or Saturday night and uh, being a part of that. We are starting a new sermon series this morning, and I actually want to start this sermon with a story. It's not a true story. It's really a joke, but it's not a funny joke. So kind of falls in line with the rest of my jokes. Also, this joke is decades old. And my hope is that it is so old that some of you have yet to hear it. But even if you know the punchline, it doesn't matter because I'm telling it for a reason, okay? Back when Albert Einstein was making the rounds, giving scientific lectures to different towns and cities and universities, he was traveling one day to yet another university to give the same scientific lecture that he's been given for you know, months at a time, and he was kind of lamenting to his chauffeur, I am sick and tired of all these speeches that I have to make. And the chauffeur said, Dr. Einstein, I have heard you give this speech so many times, I think I could give it for you. <laughs> Turns out the, the chauffeur sort of looked like Einstein, had some of the same mannerisms. Einstein said, let's try it. Let's switch places. So they pull the car over, Einstein puts on the chauffeur's jacket and cap, he drives, the chauffeur gets in the back, they drive to the university, the chauffeur gets out, they take him right up to the venue, and he gives a 45-minute lecture perfectly, word for word, verbatim, just like he'd heard Einstein do it, you know, week after week after week. And he thought he'd pulled it off until just before he sat down, one very pompous professor raised his hand and asked a very detailed, very esoteric question about formation of matter, and was going off in different trails, and you know, showing how smart he was, trying to show everybody how wise this guy was. The speaker looked at him for a while when the question was finally posed, and said, I can't believe that I am at a prestigious university, and I am asked a question by what I thought would be a knowledgeable professor. And you have asked such a basic, such an elementary question. <laughs> to show you how simple the answer to your question is, I'm going to have my chauffeur come up here <laughs> and answer that question for me. <laughs> Thank you for that courtesy laugh, by the way. Every December, I preach a sermon series on the birth of Jesus. Not because I'm convinced that Jesus was born on December 25th, but I preach a series every December on the birth of Christ because I'm convinced that Jesus left heaven and came to this world and was born a baby in Bethlehem. I preach this sermon series because I'm convinced that what Isaiah said would happen actually happened. For unto us a child is born, to us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. During the month of December, the entire world is talking about 
and celebrating the birth of Jesus. I want to talk about and celebrate the birth of Jesus. I mean, if, if angels can celebrate his birth, I think we can too. And just like Einstein's chauffeur, I know that every one of you could come up here and stand where I'm standing and tell the story of the birth of Jesus as well as I can because we have all heard it so many times. But I never get tired of talking about Jesus leaving heaven and coming earth to rescue us. As you see on the screen, I am subtitling this particular lesson, Anticipation. Uh, I want to talk about some of the anticipation that happens this time of the year. You know, one of the things that makes Christmas time so excruciating for our kids, so stressful for parents, so joyful for us grandparents, is the anticipation that builds around this time of year. You know, our, our kids are all saying, Christmas is never going to get here. And the parents are all saying, didn't we just do this last month? And I'm just finally paying off my credit card from last Christmas. And we sort of feed the whole anticipation thing with all the things that are going on around us, all the traditions that we have. You know, we all have traditions around Christmas time. I'm sure that you have some traditions in your house around Christmas time. Maybe you're the family who puts your Christmas tree up, you know, a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. God bless you, Angie Manley. Um, maybe you're, you go full-on Clark Griswold and light up your house, you know, like you can see it from the you know, space station. But we all have traditions. Martha and I have traditions that we honor around Christmas time. We always, for one, have a live Christmas tree. We always have a live tree. I grew up in a little town that built itself as the Christmas tree capital of the world. So I've got to have a live tree. Uh, we have our favorite decorations that we put out every year. Martha's famous for her knick-knack night on Christmas Eve. Some of you have been involved in Martha's knick-knack night. They are epic. You know. Every Christmas uh, season, we attend uh, a movie at uh, the Tampa Theater. Tampa Theater shows classic Christmas movies. Started off like 25 years ago with a youth group thing, and it was so much fun, it became a tradition in our family to go to Tampa Theater and see a classic Christmas movie. By the way, you all are invited to go with us in two weeks, two Sundays from now. Uh, check the bulletin board back here. We're going to go see It's a Wonderful Life at the Tampa Theater. You know, we all know the movie, but the whole experience is, is really cool. You'll enjoy it. Come join us. But we all have these traditions. And most of our traditions around this time of year center around home. There really is no place like home for the holidays, is there? But I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge at the beginning of this series, and I want, to hear, I want you to hear me say that as anticipatory as this season is, as joyful as this season is, I understand, and I know you do too, this is not the most wonderful time of the year for some people. For a lot of people, this time of year is a really difficult season. Maybe for you, it's the first season, Christmas season, that you're experiencing without a loved one. And that's hard. Maybe for you, this time of year really reminds you of all the things that you don't have. The joy and the peace and the wife and the kids, the girlfriend or the house. 
No, this kind of time of year sort of amplifies all the things that you feel are lacking in your life. Maybe there's a lot of sadness, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt in your life this time of year. But wherever you are, or wherever you are on the Christmas joy scale, I hope that in the next couple weeks, we all can sort of recapture the excitement and just the wonder of the fact that the Son of God left heaven and came to this earth. And He came for us. So for the month of December, we're going to look at some of the themes that we see surrounding the birth of Jesus. This morning, we are going to go back and begin literally at the beginning in the book of Genesis. We're going to make a pit stop in the book of Micah, and then we're going to end up in the Gospel of John. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Let's get started. Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty, a formless mass cloaked in darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over its surface. And so it's begun. The creation process has begun. Next chapter or so, God is going to create the heavens and the stars and the planets. He's going to separate dry land from the seas. He's going to create fish and birds. He's going to create vegetation, animals. And then we get to God's masterpiece in verse 26. Then God said, let us make people in our image to be like us. They'll be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the livestock, wild animals and small animals. Let us make people in our image to be like us, which begs the question, who is us? I mean, God was alone at creation, right? Wasn't God alone at creation? Was he? We're going to come back to that, okay? Verse 27. So God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself. Male and female, he created them. So we see God creating beauty from nothing. We see God bringing order from chaos. And unfortunately, it didn't take man very long to mess everything up. One chapter later, we see Adam and Eve doing the very thing that God commanded them not to do. It's like they had one job, right? God said, do not eat the fruit of this tree. And Satan tempts them, and they eat the fruit of that tree. And the text tells us in verse 7, at that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So now into this perfect world comes shame, and guilt, and brokenness. And the chaos that God had just brought back into order returns to chaos again because of sin. And that sin spreads like a virus, you know, in in the rest of the history moving forward. The relationship with God and, and man, the relationship between the creator and the created is now fractured, skewed. Look at verse 8. Toward evening they heard the Lord, they talking about Adam and Eve, toward evening they heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid themselves among the trees. What once was intimate now is distant. 
What was once connected is now severed. But God has a plan. The story isn't over. And let me say this. Last week, I preached a sermon, and I told you that God had something better for you than just a plan. He had a purpose in your life. And I made a pretty big deal about a purpose is better than a plan. Several of you could not wait to see me afterwards and tell me, we just sang an invitation in this song that says, God has a plan for me. Of this I'm sure. Of this I'm sure. Yeah, Austin raising his hand back there. You're just one of several, by the way. You know, I've got a plaque on my house that says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Congratulations. Great. You completely missed my point last week. Okay. What I was trying to say is our plans get derailed. Our plans get thrown off. Our plans don't always come true. Our plans get interrupted. God's plans never get interrupted. God's plans never get sidetracked. God is sovereign. God is the only one who can make a plan and know with certainty that that plan is going to come true because He alone is sovereign. So yes, I absolutely believe that God has a plan for me. Of this I'm sure. Of this I'm sure. And as you read through the Old Testament, you begin to see God's plan unfold. His plan to bring chaos back into order. His plan to reestablish the connection. His plan to reconcile mankind back to Himself. God had a plan. God has a plan. The plan is Jesus. That's God's plan. From the very beginning, the plan has been Jesus. But it didn't happen quickly. There's actually a lot of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. About 400 years. So for 400 years, there's no word from God. For 400 years, God goes dark. God is silent. And people wondered, where's God? 400 years. Now, there was promise. There was hope. we, We had the words, they had the words of the prophets. One of those prophets, a guy by the name of Micah. God speaks through Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, are only a small village in Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. God was preparing people for the day that Jesus would arrive, come back to come to earth, but no one anticipated that it would happen like it happened. No one anticipated it would happen when it happened exactly. No one anticipated 400 years of silence. It's a long time. 400 years is a long time. Think about the last page of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the first page of Matthew. It was just just one page, right? When you flip that page, you flipped 400 years of history where God, for the most part, is silent. You think about what happened in America 400 years ago. You probably don't know. 
402 years ago, the Mayflower landed at Cape Cod, Massachusetts. 102 pilgrims were on board. We know the story. We believe that story, but we don't think about it very much, do we? Because it's not really relevant in our lives. We have moved on, right? That's a true story. It really happened, but it's ancient history. It doesn't affect us. The point is, after 400 years, God's people primarily knew him as a silent God. They heard the stories. They believed the stories. They, they believed in God. But in a lot of ways, he was ancient history. They hadn't seen anything from God. They hadn't experienced God. Maybe this morning that's you. Maybe this morning your experience with God is a silent God. You love God. And you know the stories. And you hear other people talk about what He's done in their lives, but for you, God's gone dark. God's been silent for a long time. 400 years between the time that the Messiah was promised and the time that God would deliver. Four centuries. No word from God. No prophecies. 400 years where God was pretty dark. One of the secrets to understanding Scripture is an awareness of the two threads that, that kind of weave it all together. And that is promise and fulfillment. The promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Much of the Old Testament, and one reason why a lot of it's kind of hard to wade through, but much of the Old Testament is promise. Promises of God. They're not fulfilled yet, but God is making promises. We call them prophecies, usually, usually but God makes promises. And then the New Testament is largely the fulfillment of those promises. Especially in the Gospels. Most of those promises are fulfilled in the life and the person of Jesus Christ. There's actually over 300 promises, prophecies, about how Jesus, the Messiah, would enter the world. 300 promises about what would one day happen when the Messiah returned. Guess how many of those over 300 promises Jesus fulfills? Every single one. Every single promise about the Messiah is fulfilled by Jesus. But still, it was 400 years between the promise and the fulfillment. So here's the tension that they had to deal with. And really, here's the tension that all of us deal with. You'll, you know this, but some of you need to hear it. There will always be a gap between the promise that God gives and the fulfillment that He provides. There will always be a gap between the promise that God gives and the fulfillment of that promise. And how you fill that gap goes a long way in determining your joy and your peace and your spiritual health. Now, the birth of Jesus reminds us that God fulfilled every single promise that He made regarding the Messiah. And if He did it once, He'll do it again.
one of the great messages of Bethlehem. 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting. 400 years of anticipation. And then God finally shows up and says, hey, I can be trusted. I can be trusted to do what I said I would do. I believe that God can be trusted. Because if He could do it once, He'll do it again. Of all the wonderful messages of the birth of Jesus, maybe one of the most significant is God is faithful. Now, we might like to talk to him about his timing sometime, but make no mistake, God is faithful. Now, you imagine the world that Jesus was born into. Everyone knew about the promise of a Messiah someday, but centuries had gone by. Nothing had happened. And Mary and Joseph are living, and they know that there's a prophecy that said the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but they're living in some backwater town of Nazareth, about 100 miles from Bethlehem. They don't have any plans to go to Bethlehem. Put on top of that that Mary is pregnant, very pregnant, nine months pregnant. Joseph walks into the house one day and says, we've got to go to Bethlehem. What? Why? Caesar's called a census. We've got to go to Bethlehem. And Mary's like, not a great time. I'm pregnant. I'm real pregnant. We got to go to Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem. It's an incredibly inconvenient time for them to be traveling. And yet, what seems like an inconvenience, what seems like a very small detail, is God keeping His promise about where the Messiah would be born. And really, what did it matter? What did it matter where the Messiah was born? Would it have made any difference if, they would have been born, if Jesus would have been born in Nazareth or Bethlehem? In the grand scheme of things, would it have made any difference? Well, yes, it would have. It would have because God promised that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And God made that promise and he kept that promise, that very small detail of where Jesus would be born. The difference is God can be trusted even in the small things. If God can be trusted in the geographic location of a birth, something that's seemingly insignificant, I'm convinced he can be trusted in, in the big things as well. He can be trusted and he cares about every single promise that he's made to you and me. Now, later on this month, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. But for this morning, let me remind you how John writes Jesus back into the script. This is how the Gospel writer John uh, begins his message. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. Of course, we know that's Jesus. Word, capital W. We know that John here is referring to Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything that there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Life itself was in him. And this life gives light to everyone. The light shines through the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So we go back to Genesis chapter 3, 
where God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us that he's talking about? I think he's talking about the Trinity. I'm not positive about that. But John tells us that Jesus absolutely was there. In the beginning, Jesus was there. Jesus was with God. In fact, John says Jesus was God. John says that he created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Jesus was absolutely involved in the creation process. He was there when God walked through the garden looking for Adam and Eve. Jesus was there when the prophets were making those prophecies, those promises about the becoming of the Messiah. He was there through all those Old Testament stories. And John lets us know that the entire story, all of history, every start, every stop, every twist, every turn, all of history, the entire arc of the story points to one event. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to one event, pointing to one person, Jesus. Again, the plan has always been Jesus. The plan has always been to bring us back into a right relationship. And God has always been laser-focused on how He was going to accomplish that. He was going to do it through Jesus. And that meant that the Son of God had to leave heaven and come here to earth. The plan has always been Jesus. And so John says this in verse 14. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. Jesus became human. The one who was there in the beginning, the one who was with God, the one who was God, the one who was involved with all of creation, became human, and He made His home among us. He came home for the holidays. And because He made His home among us, we have an opportunity to know God and to experience God like like nobody else in history, really. To know God and to experience God the way God intended to be known and to be experienced. What sin messed up, Jesus came to fix. And I'll say this, and and you know this, you know, the people at that time, they didn't see it coming. They didn't realize the significance of what was happening. It had been so long, and God had been so quiet. It's been 400 years. Take a look what Paul has to say in the book of Galatians. John tells us what happened at Bethlehem. I think in Galatians 4, Paul tells us why it happened. This, This is really good stuff. But when the right time came, the time God decided on, when the right time came, I told you a minute ago we might want to argue with God about the timing. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't argue with God about anything, but especially about His timing. Because Paul promises us when the right time came, the time God decided on, He sent His Son, born of a woman, born as a Jew, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own sons. 
And because we are His sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, so now we can rightly speak of God as our dear Father. Now we are no longer slaves, but God's own sons. And since we are His sons, everything He has belongs to us, for that is the way God planned. Everything has worked exactly to God's plan. At just the right time, God sent His Son to be born of a woman. Why? To redeem us so that we can call Him Father. As children of God, the birth of Jesus proves that God is faithful. He's faithful in the big things. He is faithful in the details. The birth of Jesus proves that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And every single promise that He made either has come true or it will come true. Because God is faithful. He can be trusted. His presence is constant. His timing is perfect. God has a plan. Jesus is the plan. But He invites us to be part of the plan as well. Because the same Jesus that gave up everything, that left heaven and earth, stepped heaven to come to earth, He came for us. He came to reconcile us back to the Father. This holiday season, maybe it's time for some of you to come home for the holidays. Maybe it's time for some of you to, to come home Maybe some of you online to, to come home for the holidays. I'm not talking about here. I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about back to Jesus. Come home with Jesus. He's inviting you home. There's no place like home for the holidays. And the promise that God has made us is we have a home with Him. Not just heaven someday, but a home in His family today. The best things happen at home. This morning as a church family, if we can help you in any way, we're going to invite you to come to the front and meet us there. Let's go ahead and be standing while we sing.